Jack Spierko, another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Thursday. No, it is not. It is Friday. Friday, Friday. That's right. Friday, December the 16th. 2022, a little ahead of myself, because as usual, I'm recording this episode on Thursday after finishing up the Thursday show to give myself Friday off, and uh, I will probably actually be working uh, tomorrow because I will be setting up rewinds. This will probably, like 99%, be the last episode of the Survival Podcast. Uh, What? No, that's not a rewind until... 2023. Yep, this is time for the winter shutdown, so I'll be putting rewinds together for you, and uh, we'll be doing the Christmas special one day next week as well, and then I will be back coming out of the gate hard charging again with new episodes of the show. I always say this when I talk about this time of the year, but it is a tradition in my life going back over 20 years at this point. In fact, actually over 30 years. Damn, I'm old. And uh, yeah, I, I really recommend that you try to take... I know that everybody can do a full two weeks. I'm very blessed that I'm able to do that. It goes back to when I was a telecommunications contractor. and They just basically said, goodbye, see you next year, uh, around this time of year. And we didn't get paid, and we had to get through it. It, it wasn't actually a good thing for me back then. Because I you know, was barely making by and just beginning to make some decent money. Had to learn to put money back because it was contracting, no vacation days or nothing like that paid for. Uh, but I ended up actually really loving the downtime and deciding when I became a family man to keep that going as best I could with vacation days and however I could stage it and try to take as much time as I could off right before and through Christmas into New Year's. And it's really a great time of year to do it. So I encourage you to do it if you can on other things. What are we going to be talking about today? On the Ron Paul Liberty Highlights, Dr. Paul is going to tell you what I've been telling you. That 08 was bad. What we're about to go through is going to be worse. If you didn't believe me, maybe you'll believe Dr. Paul. On that note, Dan McAdams from Ron Paul's crew is going to tell you something else I've been saying. That maybe if you don't believe me, you'll believe Dan. And that is, we are not defending Ukraine's democracy. Because Ukraine does not have a democracy. When you can ban the opposition party from existence, when you can throw your political opponents in jail for being your political opponents, you don't have a democracy. You have something else. You have, well, dictatorship. Just because you elect your dictator doesn't mean they're not a dictator. Uh, Chris Rossini will ask the simple question, what happens if China or Russia rolls out a gold-backed currency in the middle of all this financial hoo-ha? I got another question. What if, what if they adopted Bitcoin? I'm just saying. You know, what if they did? What if they did? What if they, uh, I mean, China's going to roll out a CBDC. We know that. I don't know that China's going to do a gold-backed currency. I don't, I don't think they will. Russia might. It could happen. Who knows? What happens if anybody puts out a form of money that the world trusts more than they trust the dollar while the dollar's doing everything it can to make people... Oh, I don't know, like, not effing trusted. Uh, Interesting. We'll have Dan talk about that. Tim Toolman Cook will talk about the ins and outs of pellet stoves. Nick Ferguson will talk about growing fodder sprouts for your livestock. John Pugliano has a 2-4 for you. Investing in pre-IPOs, why you should or shouldn't. Uh, 
and uh, a little bit on life insurance if you don't really have surviving dependents and family. Would, would, does it make any sense? Nicole Sauce, we'll talk about short-form video as a marketing tool, a little four-week experiment she's been doing with that. Amy Dingman will talk about how do you know if homeschooling is working or not? How do you know that it works? And are you really, when you ask that question, saying, is it better? How do you know that it's better than government schooling? Doc Bones will talk about dealing with an increased sensitivity to bee stings across time. Ben Falk will talk about choosing work boots and what he uses. I'll tell you what I use. And it's a very different answer. And it's because we live in very different climates for, with very different needs and very different concerns. And that's why I sent this one to Ben, even though it really wasn't for him. And I will talk about onboarding new folks to Bitcoin with Bitcoin as a gift and how I would do it if I was going to do that. And I've been asked this question like six times in the past three weeks. So I figure it's worth talking about, even for you guys that are not that hip on Bitcoin. And I guess it's because Christmas is coming. And there's people that want to introduce friends and family to the world of Bitcoin. And I actually have a pretty cool way to do it that's really simple and involves nothing for you to buy other than the Bitcoin itself. But we'll get that person from zero to 80 really quick. And that, that you get them from zero to 80. If zero to 100 is using a hardware wallet in your own node, if zero to 90 would be using a software wallet and a hardware wallet, I would say complete command and understanding of how to use a software wallet at zero to 80. You can do that with somebody in 10 minutes if they're right in front of you and you know how to do it. And I'll tell you what I would do and a couple creative ideas that I have to get it done in a cool way and still give them something to open, open, open. I bet nobody knows where the hell that's from. That's from a very regional commercial from a department store that no longer exists. And I believe at least one of the commercials, famed quarterback Joe Montana was in it. I don't know where they got the money to pay for him. It was pretty close to when they disappeared. And maybe it was a last-ditch effort to try to save the place. But... The store was called Mervyn's, and the guy was at the door going, open, open, open. Totally useless trivia, unless you ever end up on Jeopardy or something like that, and they dare ask such a retarded question. Anyway, with that, let's dive on into it, starting out with the Ron Paul Liberty Highlights for the Week. In order, Dr. Paul himself, then Dynamic Adams, and then Chris Rossini. Boy, recently, what's been happening with... uh our finances in this country uh, explains a lot of what what's happening. And recent for me is 2008 with the uh, the crash in 2008 and the bubble bursting. And uh, at that time, the uh, the debt was uh, 10 10 trillion dollars. Holy man, how can we live with 10 trillion dollars? Well, right now it's 31 trillion dollars. And interestingly enough. If you look at another number at the same time, the money supply back in 08 was 7.5 trillion. Guess what M2 now is today? It's 21.8 trillion. So the, the debt goes up, the printing goes up, the money supply goes up, and guess what? Prices go up. And then what do they do? They come up with a thousand different reasons why inflation, and they carelessly use that term, anytime somebody's price goes up, oh, that's inflation. That's price inflation, but that's not the problem. The problem is the devaluation of the currency. And uh, that is what will reflect in all the prices. And people have to start thinking 
that that and understanding that that is a tax and the tragedy here is that the tax is placed on the middle class and they suffer so much more these central bankers and others are going to be pretty well protected the trillionaires probably have a little bit of gold stashed away already so uh, that that's the big problem is how is it going to uh, hurt the middle class and right now they're hurting but they, they're, people aren't talked about too much because uh, they've been uh, so mistreated by the system and misled and they had a trust in the government that now they're living in the tents without, without bathrooms in our big cities. So it, it is a, a real tragedy that is, is going on. And this danger of escalation uh, is something that we could very real, uh, we could experience in a very real way. We should not be a party to this war at all. But they say, but we have to defend democracy in Ukraine. Well, Tucker Carlson had a great segment the other night with Glenn Greenwald, two heroes in my opinion. And Tucker, I think, pointed out that our great hero Zelensky in Ukraine, he outlawed all non-state media, he outlawed all political opposition, and last week he outlawed the Orthodox Church. So if this is what democracy and freedom looks like, for which we have to pay $100 billion, is this really something worth defending? Right, yes. uh, Dr. Paul. And uh, Russia and China, we know from the headlines that they, they've been for a while now de-dollarizing. They're trying to get rid of uh, having to rely on the dollar. And they're also the two countries that are accumulating a lot of gold, maybe perhaps the most gold. Uh, let's say that there's a financial crisis. Let's just speculate that the Fed printing trillions and trillions and wars and welfares and let's say it's a bad idea and a crisis comes uh, with the dollar. Well, what happens if Russia or China or both take advantage of and say, you know what, we have currencies and we're going to back it with gold? I mean, obviously that would restore confidence into the market. And, uh, you know, eventually the United States would pr probably have to cave something that they do not want to do because their empire relies on printing money. But, you know, the time may come where Russia and China say, hey, we have a gold gold backed currencies. Let's do business. Yeah, I, I agree with Dr. Paul that what we're about to experience is going to be far worse than the 2008, 2009 financial crisis. Way worse. Way, 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 way worse. It, trust me, it, it's it, you're you're gonna look back at oh eight oh nine and go, gee, those were good days, those were good days. Um, with Dan, I, I want to say more on that though. I think one of the, the, I have a list of sins, a, a mile and a half long, that the public education system, government school system, call it what you will, is guilty of. But high on that list is economic ignorance. Our children. Uh, from most families anyway, are sent to this, this, this horrible system for 13 years, K through 12. Now a lot of them are even going into pre-K, uh, pre-K government schools. The programming is beginning at three and a half, four years of age. And it continues unabated till these kids are 18 to 19 years old in most instances. And then they go on to a university systems that continue this travesty. And, 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 and to come out after 13 years economically illiterate, I mean, don't, don't ever forget about the fact a kid can't cook bacon and frickin' eggs after coming out of school or balance a checkbook after coming out of school. But to have total economic ignorance, 
I even had an economics class when I was in high school. It was okay. The guy that taught it was one of these teachers that's just a dick to be a dick, and he thinks that makes him a good teacher. And he didn't really teach us much, but the book was interesting, and I read it. But for, even from what I remember from that, and they're going back to the 1980s here, it was still really economic ignorance by the time it was all said and done with. Pricing is affected by both market forces and inflation both. And when you are taught anything about market forces like supply and demand, for instance, uh, or inflation as in the quantity of currency in circulation, if you learn it, if you're lucky enough to learn anything about it, they are taught siloed and apart from each other. Rather than the interaction, the interactive edge between the two. Every time a price goes up, it does not mean that we had inflation. That's what Dr. Paul's getting at here. If you screw up the market, you'll have prices go up and down. Right? How is, there all, how is everything inflation? That doesn't make any sense. If everything was inflation, everything would go up at the rate of inflation, and it doesn't. And it's a holistic thing. It's why even a ton of people in this audience, a ton of people in the liberty movement, a ton of people that are Bitcoiners, a ton of people that are gold bugs, etc., tons of people that are pro-hard money, they have no idea what the hell they're talking about when they use the word inflation. It's not their fault. We're not taught that these two things are a combined effect. Government policy is a market force. Suppl straight supply side is a market force. Artificial scarcity in the mind of the consumer is a market force. And if you, if you don't include all three of those things combined with inflation when you're analyzing pricing, you have no idea what you're talking about. Anyway, moving on. Dan McAdams. Yeah, Zelensky's government's not a democracy. I want you to think about it this way. And if you primarily consider yourself a Democrat, then... Assume that what I'm saying is being done by a Republican and vice versa. If you primarily consider yourself a Republican, consider what I'm about to say is being done by a Democrat. If you're an anarchist, you already know what I'm about to say, and it won't matter to you. If you're a libertarian, assume it applies to the Libertarian Party. So imagine I'm President Jack Spierko of the United States of America, and I say, I don't like the opposition party. I'm going to make it illegal to be a member of the opposition party, and I do it. And then I say, you know, since we're at war, because the United States has been at war for 80% of its existence, by the way, I just say, you know, we're at war. We have a, we have, you know, we're out of Afghanistan. Tonight. Okay, fine. It's the war on domestic terrorism. It's the war on drugs. It's the war on, it's the war on whatever bullshit campaign slogan. Because we're at war, because this party is pro this thing we're at war with, it's illegal. And anybody that stands up and says they're a member of this party and wants to oppose my government, I'll throw them in the clink. And then I said, mud democracy. You'd say, this guy's a hypocrite, somebody hanging from a light pole. That's what's going on in Ukraine. Prove me wrong if you disagree. Don't get mad at me. Don't send me an email saying I'm a Putin puppet or some other stupid shit. Prove that's not happening. I dare you. Chris Rossini's thought on what if China uses gold. I, I think the whole Ron Paul crew, as much as I love them, they are attached to an outdated monetary instrument. If, let's, let's examine that idea. I'm all about hard money. Let's say China says we're going to introduce the gold back on. Okay, great. Where, well, how much gold reserves do you have, China? Okay, you can trust whatever answer they give, okay? As much as you can trust the answer, how much COVID did you have from the start of COVID up until your, your recent 
you know, boom in COVID numbers that you're finally being honest about. How much COVID was in that delta? Zero, right? So the problem with gold is a currency. It backing a national paper currency or a national digital currency is that you still have to trust the state to not say they have more gold than they do. It, it, it has counterparty risk. If it has counterparty risk, it's not hard money. The only way to have gold be a currency without counterparty risk is everybody walks around carrying gold. And then how are you going to buy a product that you're going to ship to your house from five states away or three countries away in a modern economic system? You're not. You're going to need a counterparty. Now we're back to counterparty risk. So I think it's an interesting thought. But what you're doing when you say something like that, Chris, and I love you, man, but you're implying that a nation that is best served by having a fiat currency is going to choose a hard currency because they're mad at United States of America. You see how that, that doesn't quite work out that way. I don't think they will. Now, one thing China has a shitload of, and don't think they don't, is Bitcoin. That could be the case. And what's to stop any entity, any nation that wants to start putting Bitcoin on its central bank balance sheet from just saying, we'll take Bitcoin for international settlements. The United States war machine, we're a little spread thin. And I'm not saying it will be Bitcoin. I'm saying there's more than one option. And that of all the options that are better than the current system we have, that gold is probably at the bottom of the list at this point. It's one of those it's one of those things. This is how I feel about gold, honestly. If you ask me this question in 1995, I agree with all the people that are advocates for a gold-backed currency because at the time it was the best thing we had, but I would still point to the weakness in gold and say I'm not sure how you overcome the weakness. In a realm where we've created absolute digital scarcity, I think we've eliminated gold as a monetary instrument at the global or national scale. We just have. It, it hasn't, and so many people try to do it with silver. So many people started silver barter networks. I was part of those silver barter networks. I sold my membership for silver. I used to get a lot of silver, but it never really worked because it's cumbersome. People do business electronically. We need a money that works electronically. And if we're going to fix the problem, which is you can't trust humans, then you have to eliminate counterparty risk. And unless you can come up with a way to 100% verify gold reserves at all times in real time, in a way, if you can make a gold node-based analytical system where I can install on a little box that's sitting over here, got my hand on it right now, size of a deck of cards running a Bitcoin node, that can tell me the exact state of gold reserves of all the players all at the same time, then we can talk. I know, Jack, we'll make Bitcoin gold. They already did that and it failed because all it tells you is where the token is, not where the gold behind it is, which means it's positively worthless. Just a thought. Anyway, moving on, Tim Toolman Cook on Pellet Stoves. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back to answer another question for the expert council, so let's dive right in. First, the question is, is it possible to heat a small house with just a wood stove in the basement? Hey Tim, Justin here from the woods of western Massachusetts. I have a very small ranch-style house, 
main floor just under 900 square feet, plus a mostly finished walkout basement. I have electric baseboard on the main floor, and the basement only has an old non-functioning gas stove. I'm thinking about replacing it with a pellet stove for heating my basement. May also consider a wood stove. But I'm curious how realistic it might be to get a meaningful amount of heat to travel up to my main floor, ideally enough to eliminate or at least reduce my use of the electric baseboard. I'm hoping this may be possible considering I'm only intending to heat the roughly 700 square foot finished part of my basement and 900 square foot main floor. I could install floor vents if need be, and of course, my door to the basement would stay open. Do you think this is feasible and what tips might you have? As a side note, I unfortunately do not have adequate space on my main floor to install a wood or pellet stove, which I'm which is why I'm hoping to utilize one in my basement and get the heat to travel up. Thanks, Tim. Justin. Well, first, Justin, thanks for reaching out. I don't think I've done an, a question on pellet stoves before, and I like talking about them. They're, they're rather interesting. They were all the rage back probably 10, 15 years ago when I was working at the hardware store when things like furnace oil and that sort of thing shot up through the roof. All of a sudden, everybody wanted pellet stoves, and there was a huge kind of shortage in pellets. And Anyway, let's start with, can you heat a home with a pellet stove or a wood stove in the basement? The answer is absolutely you can. That was a very common place, a very common thing that was done on the East Coast where I grew up. My best friend Danny, we'd always walk into his house, she'd go into his living room, and he'd have this massive, I'd say it's about a 30 by 30 inch kind of open heat vent or open air vent that went right to the basement. And you'd walk on it and it would sag about two inches and you could see right down 10 feet into the basement. And that is how they heated their house. I believe that's still how they, his uh, grandparents heat their house. Kind of interesting, it works. It's not 100% efficient, but you definitely can do it. So what are some considerations that we need to look at? First off, well, do you want a pellet stove or do you want a wood stove? There's a lot of different things to think about. There's a lot of advantages to pellet stoves, and there's a couple of really big disadvantages. First, pellet stove requires electricity to run the hopper. Wood stove is completely off-grid. Um, now, the cool thing about a pellet stove is you can get them with big hoppers, you know, with up to 80-pound capacity, which will allow you to run it for an entire full day, which allows you to leave the house and come back and not worry about it being absolutely frozen. With modifications, you can even burn corn or pressed prairie grass, things like that, but I'm not recommending it. Pellet stoves are way less messy because you can have your fuel source delivered on pallets in bags, and there's very little ash because it burns very, very completely. To install them is a fair bit simpler. It's very similar to installing a dryer because they have just a three or sometimes a four inch pipe that goes out through. Price-wise, they are almost identical to wood stoves now, so there's that as well. However, what are the downsides? Well, you're at the mercy of a market. Number one, you have to go and buy your fuel source from somewhere. So you can't just go out and cut down a tree if, you know, worst case scenario, you need to heat your house. You're stuck with that bagged fuel. That kind of sucks. You're stuck with the price going up or down, which is what it is whenever you're buying something from the market. Do I like pellet stoves? I really do. They're they're cozy. They're nice. Now, if you're looking at a pellet stove and you've got around 1,600 square feet of space you want to heat, you're going to want something. 
I would say at least in the 60,000 BTU range, they, they list those best case scenario at 2,000 square feet. So, you know, that gives you an extra 25% buffer room to go there. Now, the thing is, heating two stories in some instances will actually be a little more efficient than trying to heat one big space. The thing about a central appliance that doesn't have, say, a forced air furnace blowing behind it is that it heats the central area really, really well, but the outlying areas, it doesn't heat very well. So where you're, you know, where you're kind of a boxed house with one floor on top of the other and heat rises, that's going to work in your favor. I would just make sure you have as much area to pass through. You know, if you don't want to leave your basement door open, put a nice, you know, 18 inch grate in the bottom of it so that it'll allow it to pass through and let hot air do what it does and let allow it to rise. You know, make sure you have a lot of insulation in your roof. But yeah, man, absolutely. A wood stove or a pellet stove will work great in a basement. You know, is it as good as a forced air furnace? No, it's not. But it was the way they did it for years and it works. So I hope that helps. Thanks for reaching out, man. So guys, if you want to keep up with what I'm up to, the easiest way is to go by the workshop YouTube channel or subscribe in the podcast. Catch your feeds Thursday, Saturday, Sunday, 7 p.m. Mountain Time live the workshop podcast and of course if you want to support what i'm doing and you like morale patches velcro patches all of that stuff go by patchofthemonth.co sign up and subscribe 10 bucks a month 100 dollars a year and you get a really cool morale patch sent out to you usually politically incorrect kind of funny you know that kind of thing so if you enjoy the content that i put out and you like value for value exchange run by patchofthemonth.co and sign up Guys, that's it for me this week. As always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. I'm going to say if I lived in a climate cold enough to warrant it and didn't have access to significant amounts of lumber, wood, regular old wood, I would highly consider this. I know it's against the gospel of Paul Wheaton and rocket mass heaters, but... I'm not sure we can't make a rocket mass heater that burns wood pellets either. Anyway, uh, moving on from there, let's let's chat with Nick Ferguson about growing fodder sprouts, not fodder trees, for livestock. Hey there, Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty and RarePlantStore.com here with an expert counsel answer on sprouting seeds and fodder for rabbits. This one uh, comes from Ben and he asks, does it make sense to grow fodder for smaller livestock, i.e. rabbits and chickens? I started growing fodder from bear, from barley and black oil sunflower seeds for my rabbits as a feed supplement over the winter. I'm growing it in my garage in 10-20 trays with automated watering. I know it will depend on the cost of seed and feed, whether it's cost effective or not. My thought is, that it will be more nutritious than the store-bought pellet feed and soy-free. Thanks, Ben. Well, it can absolutely be a healthy and good idea for your rabbits and chickens. I encourage it. I think it's a great idea. It's really going to come down to the cost of the materials. Spreadsheets don't lie. Actually crunch the numbers and include the added cost to heat the space where they're being sprouted. I don't know if it's in an already heated space, But if you're having to bring up the temperature of a garage, for instance, to get them to sprout and grow fast enough, then you need to take that into account. Uh, To be honest, you could probably use those trays with some soil and uh, grow wheat, oats, ryegrass, barley. Um, And you could use shears to harvest and regrow or push the tray up against the cage with a spacer so, you know, the rabbits don't chew the trays to shreds and let them self-harvest the grass all day. 
you could do that the same with the uh, the chickens. So if your chickens are in a place where you can uh, set that tray uh, with a, a piece of fence over top of it, an excluder so that they can harvest the tops but not get into it, then you can continue to keep growing that and get them something green to eat in the dead of winter. And then you just take those trays back, put them back in your grow area, continue to water and fertilize the tray until it's pretty much exhausted. You should be able to do that all winter long with each one of those trays. I bet you'll get way better yields and cost efficiency from that as compared to just doing the whole sprouting barley or wheat and feeding the sprouted fodder as kind of a rooted mass. You'll get better yields doing that. However, if you are more interested in the nutritional aspect than, you know, growing and feeding the whole root mass, you're probably going to get more nutrition out of that, uh, sprouting it and feeding it sooner than you would as growing it, um, by growing it as grass. Um, so, you know, it, it really comes down to what is your goal here? Are you trying to supplement your feed and get some extra green nutrition for those animals during the winter, which I think is really the better route to go with this than, than uh, you know, buying those whole grains and sprouting them and feeding those whole grains to your animals because that's not going to provide a complete nutritional profile. You're going to have deficiencies. You can't just replace that uh, that pellet feed with just green sprouts. You, you, you can't do that. It's not going to be, you're not going to have healthy animals. Um, so it all depends on your situation. If you can get wheat or barley or oats or whatever direct from a grower and get it cheap and feed grade, um, that can make a big difference in your feed costs. So um, you'll still probably want to feed that store-bought pellet feed since this is only going to be a supplement. That's, that's, my, that's my guess is you're most likely only going to be doing this as a supplement. But if you're smart, um, we're going to pivot here. You're going to get some willow planted this winter or early spring, and you're going to ferment a bunch of shredded willow leaves in buckets so you don't have to buy those feed store pellets anymore. I know it sounds like a plug for my tree sale, and it is because I don't hate money, and the tree sale's coming up January 1st. But seriously, you can do a similar job with local willow trees. Just cut the branches at least a pencil diameter or larger. I mean, you could cut two-inch diameter sticks, jab them eight inches or so in the ground, leave four inches or so sticking out of the soil. They'll root this winter and grow into new trees. The, the wild willows that you find local to you, because I can almost guarantee they're there, they won't grow as fast as the hybrid willows. But I'm telling you, slow and free is better than paying for store-bought feed. So, uh, like I said, this January 1st, you could be ready to put in your order for cuttings or bare root tree packages from rareplantstore.com, or you could go source some slower-growing willows and cottonwoods in your local area. Um, honestly, I'd be happy if you did either one of those because my sincere goal is to get as many people pushing towards feed store independence as possible. My business model is insanely stupid. I'm selling trees that are dead simple to propagate and I'm telling my customers how to make thousands more trees with what they buy from me. 
but for some reason, I sell out every year. I think I just haven't even touched the market for it. So, back to the seed sprouting fodder tray kind of supplement feeding. It's definitely a good idea, if for no other reason than something green for them to eat all winter. But you're going to have to crunch the numbers and compare how much less they eat compared to the pellets to determine if it's actually saving you any money. So... I just get started this winter with some kind of tree fodder system so you can get off the rat wheel of feed store dependence. For more information on fodder trees, head over to rareplantstore.com. And for more information on me and how to go about scheduling an in-person consult, check out homegrownliberty.com. I'm Nick Ferguson. Do good things. Good stuff from Nick. And I'll tell you, I, I have generally grown more fodder and I've generally relied on barley and black oil sunflower. And I've generally done more of that for my ducks and my chickens in the, the, the winter than I do in the summer, spring, and fall. And, and that's not including now. Like when I say winter, I don't mean just December. I mean, right now, there's more green growth on my property than there is any time of the year. It's when we get into the deep part of the winter where there's no grasshoppers like there are in the summer... And it really knocks back the growth, and I feel that they need more green, and I do it more for that than I do to save money or whatever. But, but what Nick said about the supplemental heating has been the number one challenge for me because I'm not going to heat my garage or what have you for that. Now, one year I was doing some experiments with some plants starting and stuff, and I had a big grow tent out in the garage, and I had heat just in that tent. It was a 10 by 10 tent. And I did it in there. That worked fine. So if you can, like he said, if you can find a place where you're heating the area anyway, because it's not something I really want to do in the house. It's not that I wouldn't. It's that I don't really want to. Uh, if I do it in the, the only place I have to do it is really the, the laundry room. And I'm going to get yelled at if I do that. I'll just leave it at that. Um, but it is a great way to supplement feed. It's very economical. It's easy for me to do in from late spring to early fall when it's nice and warm out. I get very quick growth. In the winter, I either get really slow sprouting or it takes so long to sprout, you start getting some mold issues and some caking together and stuff like that. But it's really easy to do. I don't use 1010 trays or anything. I use five-gallon buckets with holes drilled in them. And all I do is fill one bucket up like halfway with water. This one has no holes in it, by the way. That's a soaking bucket. And I put the seed into a bucket with holes. And I put the, the whole bucket into the non-hole bucket and, and push it down in the water so the water level comes up. The seeds soak. And then you just pull that bucket out the next day after it's had a good 24-hour soak. And then I stack the buckets that are sprouting out and I dump the water through all the buckets. That way everybody gets a new dose of water. And then I put a, take the, the, the last bucket in the system and feed it. And then I put that bucket into the, the, the water bucket, fill it up enough to soak the seed, and put seed in it again. And I just keep doing that. And if you end up at a time where your temperature says you need five days to grow out, then five days, five bucket, it's a six bucket system at that point. One soaking, five grow out days. And then what happens is it gets colder, you just keep adding more buckets so you have more time to grow out if that makes sense. But there is a point where it becomes a diminishing returns and you just don't get good effort or, or good results without some sort of supplemental heating. And uh, But it's a great way to go, and it is a nutritional boost, but it's also giving them, in the, when you do it in the winter, it's giving them access to fresh growth that they normally don't have. Though I don't know how important, think about it this way. 
that bird or that animal is adapted to that climate. Now, rabbits you're keeping in a cage, but I think chickens look fine what they find. I don't know. If you're doing this, I'd love to hear from you, your thoughts on it. Let's move on. Next one we have is from John Pugliano on pre-IPOs. We'll find out what that is. And life insurance for those without a bunch of folks to leave behind to worry about. Hello, TSP. We're going to end the year here answering a couple financial questions. First question comes from Chris, and he's asking, what do I think about these new platforms that allow the average investor to invest in pre-IPOs? An IPO is initial public offering. Well, Chris, frankly, I don't think much about them. I think that these type of alternative investments carry a high degree of risk. They're not very transparent to the average investor. They really have no idea what they're getting involved with. In general, you end up losing sovereignty over your money because it's tied up for extended periods of time. People don't adequately read the prospectuses, and so they don't realize the fees or the other limitations that are built into it because generally these are designed to be restrictive long-term investments. Um, just as an example of this, you may have seen in the headlines, one of the Blackstone Real Estate Investment Trusts is currently stopping redemptions because there's a decline in the real estate market and so many people want to pull out their money. And these products are designed for long-term investing and to prevent investors from prematurely selling the funds, there are clauses that are built into the contract that can and do restrict redemptions. And that's exactly what we're seeing happen with one of the Blackstone Real Estate Investment Trusts. You've seen similar things happen with peer-to-peer lending platforms. And then, of course, not directly related to your question, but look at the fiasco that's going on with FTX and other crypto schemes. So broadly speaking, I personally think that these pre-IPO investment platforms are in that category. And when I say in that category, I mean that these are investment deals that are packaged up and they're sold to investors with a lot of hype and enthusiasm. But I think a lot of the benefit is for the companies that create those and package them as opposed to the individual investor. Now, if you're shrewd and you're sophisticated and you take the time to do the research and understand the investment prospectus and you're willing to take the risk, and you have that long-term investment horizon, then maybe you can make it work. But I really don't think most people will, and I think a lot of these pre-IPO platforms are going to go the way of the SPACs, you know, the special purpose acquisition companies. Remember how hot they were about 18 months, two years ago? And now most of them are falling apart. You know, bottom line, if the investment strategy and the opportunity were so good, they wouldn't have to market it and sell it to the little average guy because the big smart money would already be investing in it. Ah, maybe that's just my cynicism, but personally that's how I feel about it, and I think history justifies my opinion on that. So Chris, personally, I would avoid those things like the plague. Next question comes from Calvin, and he's asking about life insurance, and specifically in his case, he's wondering what advantages there are to have life insurance if you're not married or don't have any dependents. Well, Calvin, despite the sales pitch that you're going to get from most insurance salesmen, unless you have dependents, in general, there's not a whole lot of reason to have life insurance, or at least not much of it. Now, there can be a case made for complex estate planning and tax mitigation purposes. But if you were in that net worth category, 
you would already know you were in that kind of a situation and you wouldn't be asking the question. The bottom line, the absolute number one best reason to have life insurance is to ensure dependence of the income stream that would be provided in the untimely death of the income earner. So if you have a dependent that relies on you, whether it's your spouse or your partner or your minor children, or if you have someone that you take care of that has special needs and is incapable of ever taking care of themselves, then you as the income earner and the provider can use life insurance to guarantee that during your working career, if you were to die prematurely, you can meet that dependent's needs. And the best way to do that is for the income earner to have at least 10 times their annual salary. And of course, the younger the dependents are, or if there's someone with special needs and they're going to need taken care of for the rest of their life, having a payout benefit that is in excess of 10 years of your income would be more desirable. And the best method for securing an insurance policy is to have term life insurance, meaning that you're paying a set amount every year and the policy will be in force for a set number of years, like 10, 20, 30 years. You can get these policies fairly inexpensively and you can adjust the length of time so that once you no longer have dependents that are relying on your income, or once you're no longer working and therefore don't have an income that doesn't need replaced, then theoretically you don't need the life insurance. And the way you can make this work is that that small premium that you're paying every year is insuring the income stream for those dependents that are relying on you. And then you take the rest of your savings, you invest it wisely, so that when you do get to retirement age and you no longer have dependents, you have enough of a net worth to provide for yourself into old age. And that's exactly the situation my wife and I are in right now. I have a term policy that's going to expire in a couple years. My kids are grown and raised. They're not dependent on my wife and I anymore. And we have prudently saved and wisely invested our money so that we have a net worth that's adequate enough that we don't have to worry about relying on outside sources of income in our old age. Well, hey guys, as always, thanks for the questions and a special shout out to Jack and Dorothy. Merry Christmas to the both of you and everybody in the TSP community. 2023 is just around the corner. Let's make it a great year. Until then, this is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealthsteading Podcast. Well, now I feel really good about the fact that when I responded to that email that that audio came on that I told John Merry Christmas. So I got ahead of it there because, yeah, Merry Christmas to you too, John. I don't have a lot to add to that because it was perfectly answered. Um, I would just say if, if, if I had nobody that I was worried about left, I had no family members, no nothing, I would probably still have somebody that was a friend or something like that that I would be like, look, dude, when I kick off, make sure that my body's taken care of and my shit goes somewhere good and some sort of a will for that. And I would probably have enough life insurance that whatever that person needed to do to clear up whatever mess I leave behind was, was taken care of. And, and that would be about it. Life insurance is doing, like John said, insure your life and insure your income. So that, it doesn't benefit you. There is ways it can, but like he said, if you, if you were in that category, you wouldn't ask the question. Right. 
but in the end, your life insurance is for those you leave behind. So if you're not leaving anybody behind, you, you see what I'm saying there. Anyway, moving on, let's now hear from Nicole Sauce on how her experiment with short video marketing went. Well, hello, TSP. Nicole Sauce here with some observations over the last four weeks of casually playing with short video formats to promote what we're doing here at the Living Free in Tennessee podcast, as well as Holler Roast Coffee. I went into the last four weeks with a question, and the question was this. Is TikTok better? Is YouTube better? YouTube shorts? Or are Facebook reels better? That was one part of the question. The second part of the question is, how well will it work to use the short video format to engage with my audience and promote the work we're doing here? And it breaks down as follows. First of all, we'll start with Facebook. Facebook Reels in the last four weeks have been our most effective means of reaching out to people with short form video. I think this is because Facebook is letting that happen right now and they are trying to compete with TikTok. So I think it's going to get harder over time because as we know historically with Facebook, once they launch something and it's going well and they build it up and people get really into it, you as a content creator or as a business eventually get shuttered back so that they can have you pay to advertise your thing. So I think that's where they're going to go in the long term. Right now, though, reels reach my reels reach the most people out of any of the short video content I put out there. And second, most importantly, they get the easiest or the highest number of engagements because of that. And engagements are more important to me than how many people watch the video. Engagements are something like a comment or a share. A close second is YouTube as far as just gross number of of plays. Things I have put out as a YouTube short, which is 15 seconds or shorter, have gotten thousands of views quickly. However, you can't trust their numbers because when somebody watches a YouTube short, it's on a loop. And so sometimes they've gone through it three to five times before they realize they watched your stupid little video about a stupid sheep shelter that's not even aligned correctly and is not very good quality five times because it's super short. So it takes a while for people to react sometimes. So while I see the YouTube videos being seen more times, just gross numbers, I'm going to go back to Facebook has more engagements and the total number of times my reels are being seen versus YouTube. It's about double on YouTube, but I have many, many more comments on the Facebook video. So that's just a little bit of context. Now, here's the interesting thing. Let's compare TikTok to this. TikTok was supposed to be the Wild West of video shorts for me. I was supposed to get all this awesome followership. Hasn't happened. However, every so often, one of my videos does really well and I get a lot of views. And when I get a lot of views, I get a lot of comments. The thing about the comments in TikTok is it turns into a conversation very often, which is kind of cool. So I get more comments on Facebook Reels right now, but on TikTok, it turns into a conversation. A conversation turns into a conversion. A conversion is really what the ultimate goal is as I am looking to add podcast listeners or customers for the coffee. Next, let's talk about what's good to include for content. For Facebook, I've had 
the most success, not asking a question every time, but every third to fifth video, ask a question that people would answer in the comments. The second thing is if I focus on lifestyle and philosophical sorts of questions or topics, those do really well. Newsy things doing less well. Salesy commercial like things. Eh. If somebody follows me and they see that I sell coffee, I've seen some action there. But Facebook Reels aren't the best place to just release a 30 second commercial. Now let's go to YouTube. YouTube Shorts, 15 seconds or less. That's really short. YouTube Shorts for me have done best when I'm showing a short view of something in my life, whether it's sort of a struggle in the roasting shack, like I have one coming out right now explaining the real reason roasters try to convince you not to grind your coffee, or a little piece of the homestead. So in order to be effective with that, we need to engage people in three to five seconds with a little quick view of something cool and then have a call to action to send them to a bigger video or to another place. Otherwise, what they're doing is just watching this quick view over and over and over and over and over, and it doesn't get you anything, and I'm not sure it gets them anything either. All it gets you is like gross numbers of plays on your shorts, which doesn't necessarily help you if they don't like it or subscribe to your channel or throw a comment in or go to your website or sign up for your podcast. Then we have TikTok. Com content on TikTok is much more flexible. I have found newsy topics to be a lot more engaging to people who follow me there or slightly controversial things or showing the truth of something. So the truth of what it's really like to raise sheep, like they poop and stuff. And then you have to clean that poop up and people want to see you struggle. I've also gotten decent engagement just sharing straight up audio exports from the Fountain FM app that turns your audio into a video that has, you know, like a sound thing that wiggles. That's been okay. TikTok also, I do well with actual commercials there. So if I record a commercial about a coming webinar or the holiday coffee offerings at Holler Roast, I, because I use tracking links, get actual sales off of those, which is counter to the other two platforms when I do that kind of content on the other two platforms. Now let's talk of length of content. On Facebook Reels, I have found it's best to be 45 seconds or or shorter. But if I go too short, it's not very engaging. I have a seven second video up there of my dog laying on her back, not as popular on the Facebook Reels as it is on where? YouTube. So YouTube Shorts, I think the ideal time is seven to eight seconds. And that means that's how much time you have to get to tell your quick story, give that quick view, and have a call to action to go somewhere else. TikTok, on the other hand, one, two, three minutes, if your account can go that long, people stick around on TikTok. Interesting, isn't it? Now let's talk about music. Facebook Reels, if you're doing them, you should not add background music, even though they have that editing tool available for you there. Why? Because what often happens is you then get a copyright infringement, even though it's served up from their collection of music, and then your reels get deprioritized or demonetized. And yes, you can monetize reels with stars. 
On TikTok, on the other hand, adding background music can make your video a lot more interesting. And if you remember about length of video, people are more likely to sit around for a longer video. So having some background music is nice. That said, on TikTok, make sure you turn it way down if you're saying words so that your words can be heard because it's very easy to accidentally oversaturate the music. YouTube, I haven't found any difference between having music in the background and not having music in the background on YouTube shorts. Now let's talk video quality and editing. I did not test highly edited videos, highly professional looking videos. I was taking this from the standpoint of if I just have a phone and no professional editing tools, how can I make this work? And what I found is that in many cases, the least good videos that I made just from a visual standpoint were the most engaging to people. And I think that's because it feels real to them. And that has been true on YouTube, Facebook, and TikTok. However, one thing I think is very important to do is add captions because a lot of people are not watching the video with the sound on. They're just seeing the words. And for that, TikTok automatically does it. YouTube automatically does it. And Facebook sometimes gives you that tool, but sometimes they don't. So you may have to find a way to add captions with a different app on your phone if you're going to do Facebook Reels. Finally, let's talk about how fast the following comes as a result of using these tools and monetization. On TikTok, it's taken me months to get about 250 followers, which is very, very slow. And in the last four weeks, I was purposeful about posting on a regular basis rather than doing the hurdy-gurdy approach. So I didn't see a lot of additional steps forward from that. On YouTube, for YouTube Shorts, I've had tons of views on my shorts, and it maybe adds five to ten people a week, which is not very great either. Facebook, I got 1,600 new followers in four weeks, and I went from having a non-monetized account to a monetized account in that same period of time. And part of the reason I was able to make that happen is when I started posting reels, a coach reached out to me, just a friend who's already making money on reels and said, gave me some coaching tips early on, which helped me more quickly monetize and get the following. And that brings us to the most important part of any of the short formats. It kind of goes back to this on social networking. If you have the network, it, you can go a lot further, a lot faster. And if you can have a relationship with somebody who will help you by sharing on their platform or by coaching you through with little tips, I think you get things done a lot faster. So my opinion right now, and this is not a professional thing, right? I just tested these three for four weeks casually. I was not looking to try to optimize everything on them. I just wanted to see what I thought was working better. My opinion right now is that Facebook is easier to make quick forward momentum on at this exact time in Facebook's reels or short video format history. However, I think that's going to go away. As far as getting the most gross views or gross number of views, YouTube is a lot faster and the more real or casual your video is, it seems to be that and giving a small view of the story of your life, that seems to be the things that people are watching on there. That said, I'm getting less engagement from that. And then finally, TikTok. I think TikTok is currently 
a slower startup, but better quality of followers when you get followers on, on TikTok, as long as you're sticking to your core focus. And my focus is the Living Free in Tennessee podcast and Holler Roast Coffee. So I just wanted to share that initial feedback with anybody who's also been interested in playing with short video formats to to market whatever you're doing from you know, awesome teas that Angie's Gardens puts out to, you know, to Toolman Tim's video following, all of those things. I think it's it's a format that can help build following, engagement, and drive sales if it's done consistently. And I'll come back in another six months or so, so and tell you what I've learned after actually trying to ride this pony the right way. And since this is the last Expert Council segment of 2022, I wanted to wish everybody a Happy New Year, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy whatever you celebrate, guys. It's been a, uh, an honor serving on the Expert Council for another year. And of course, a small reminder, if you have not gotten your gifts ordered yet, we mail order coffee gifts to people who love coffee at hollerroast.com. Till next year, guys. I think one thing that might skew the results a little bit, though, in all this is so Nicole does really good with Facebook. And I think she's right. Facebook is using Reels, which is tied in Instagram Reels. So it's kind of the same thing. Um, but I think, yes, Facebook is, is letting it get broader reach because it's what they want you to do. And Facebook, like she said, they do this. They make something work really well. Personal, or I'm sorry, uh, brand pages when they were released, that was incredibly responsive. I reached tons of people. I grew up well over a hundred thousand people following me on Facebook in just like a, a few months, and it was so effective. And then one day, it just didn't reach anybody anymore. They turned it off, so I would have to pay them. So I think they are doing that again. But the other side of it is Nicole's been on Facebook a long time. Nicole has cultivated relations on Facebook. For a long time. So given that she's newer to TikTok, it, it just stands to reason, in my opinion, that Facebook Reels would work better for her than TikTok as far as total reach because there's more people that follow her and pay attention to her there. And I think that's the case for a lot of people. This platform really works well because you've been on it and you've worked it a long time and you've made it work. It's less the platform and more the, the, the way the platform has been worked across time. But I also agree with her summation. Facebook is doing this rug pull creators. It's what they always do. It's what they always have done. It's what they always will do as long as it keeps working for them. Um, personally, I've had a hard time justifying the additional effort to do short-form content myself because I'm not a short-form guy, and I kind of feel like it's one of those things I should do. But I'd rather work really hard to produce a good hour-and-a-half-long show for you guys than go out and try to pimp my wares I'm not putting anybody down for doing it, but that's kind of what it would be for me. Like, just trying to get more. Just trying to get more. I feel like I'm at a station in, in, in my content-based business that my job is to do the best job I can for the people that are here and let that help continue to grow the cause, so to say. And I hope y'all will continue to share the show with other people because that's how we've grown the best from day one. Put out really good content, care deeply about our audience, and, and then ask you to share it. And please do that for all the expert council members, whether they're short-form content producers, long-form, it doesn't matter. Nicole, Tim, John, 
Ben Falk, all these people you've heard from today, Dr. Paul at the Liberty Report, share this information with other people. That's the best Christmas present you can give any of us. Because we're all in this primarily because we feel what we have to say is important and we want to reach as many people as we can with it. And maybe I do need to play with some short-form content. I don't know. If you'd, if you'd care if I did it, let me know. Otherwise, let's move on again. We've got another expert to hear from today, uh, Amy Dingman on homeschooling. And How do you know if it works or it's working? Hey, TS peers. This is Amy Dingman from the Farmish Kind of Life podcast. And today I'm here to answer the question, how do I know homeschooling works? I used to get this question a lot when our kids were younger, and the question feels a little bit different now that our kids are both graduated from homeschooling and off doing their own thing. But how do I know homeschooling works? How do we know homeschooling works? How do you know that homeschooling is working for you? That's a really good question because I think sometimes we decide to homeschool, but we don't really put any thought into how we're going to know that it's absolutely working. Because here's the thing. It's more than academic. If it's just academic, then any kid who's getting straight A's in school can say the public school is a win, right? I think before you say homeschooling works, you have to know what you want homeschooling to do for you, what you want that journey to be for your family. Often when people ask, how do you know homeschooling works? The implied question is, how do you know homeschooling is better than public school? And maybe for your family, it's not a question of better than. Maybe it's a question of different. And that's why I think it's really important to know why you're homeschooling. And it's not just, I don't want my kids in public school because indoctrination or the woke culture or whatever. There's more to it than that, right? If we really dig into it, there's more to it. Because if all you're hoping to do is get your kids away from whatever BS you feel the public school is teaching... Your homeschool experience could be a complete train wreck. It could be a complete disaster. Your kids could grow up to hate you and never want to talk to you again. And you could still count homeschooling as a win because you kept them away from whatever evil thing you thought you were keeping them away from. So it's more than that, right? So the suggestion that I'm going to make here is to sit down with your family and make a sort of homeschool mission statement. Why are we homeschooling? What are we hoping to do with this? And this is really great for referring back to when you're having one of those really hard days, when you're questioning your decision or you kind of get off the path or whatever. When our family made this, we actually made it a project. So this might be something fun you want to do with your family. And I did this maybe 10 years ago with my kids. So I'm kind of thinking back to what we did. But what I did is I put out a bunch of slips of paper with questions on it. Like, I like homeschooling because or goals with homeschooling are, or homeschooling is best when. So I had a bunch of slips of paper that had these questions on it. And I, I put them out and I told my kids, think about answers for these questions. Think about it through the week. Whenever you think of an answer, they could answer it as many times as they wanted. Whenever you think of an answer, just write it down on this little piece of paper, drop it in this bucket. And at the end of the week, we'll dump them all out and we'll read what everybody answered. So for the question, I like homeschooling because they might have answered, you know, do I like it because it's flexible, because I get to sleep in late, because I get to work faster or slower, I get to study what I want. You know, those would have been some of the answers. Uh, goals with homeschooling. You know, do you want more field trips? Do you want to study a certain subject? Do you want to be in four different sports a year? Do you want to take lessons for, you know, whatever? What are the things you want to do with homeschooling, my dear children? And then homeschooling is best when... 
it's outside, it takes place in the morning, is super relaxed, follows a routine, goes year round, what happens with a bunch of friends, like what, what, how, when do you like homeschooling best, right? During the week, they wrote down all their answers. And after the week was done, we sat down, we poured out this big bucket of slips of paper, and we read everyone's answers. And we saw some common themes, and it was really fun. And there were a few surprises. I was like, oh, that's what you think we're doing here. That's what you want to do with it. This is really important to do with your kids. I mean, do it do it yourself, do it with your partner, whatever. But make sure your kids are involved at some point, because they're going to tell you things that you didn't, you didn't know were, were part of the journey. So after we read all these answers, we decided we were going to put it into really fancy language, like an actual mission statement, right? So if you're curious, our homeschool mission statement at our house was this. Our homeschool exists to provide an educational experience that is both fun and family-oriented. While we realize we must master basic skills, which include but are not limited to the three R's, we seek to spend a considerable amount of time on topics that excite us as individuals. We value learning at our own pace and in our own way, as well as a flexible calendar which allows for harvest, hunting, and other activities. So that was our very fancy homeschool mission statement. And I can't tell you how many times I referred back to that when I thought we weren't doing enough or I thought we were taking too long of a break to go do something else, or when I was worried about the pace of how we were progressing with something, it was so helpful. But you know what else? That right there that we wrote as a family, that's what we wanted from homeschooling. That was our goal. That's what we wanted from homeschooling. That's why we were homeschooling. Did we accomplish what we wanted? Yeah. But I know some of you are thinking, come on, Amy, give me something else. Are my kids going to get into college? Are my kids going to get great jobs? Maybe. Maybe not. I don't know. Is that your measure of homeschooling working? I personally think that kids who want to get into a great college or get whatever job, they're going to get into a great college or get whatever job, whether they're homeschooled or not. That's a kid thing. I don't think that's a school thing. How else do I know that homeschooling works? My kids are happy. They can talk to people. They're responsible. They're mature. They get along really well. They want to learn. But those are things that might have happened if they were in public school, too. I don't know. And I also know kids who are homeschooled who are not happy. They hate life. They don't like their siblings. Is that because of homeschooling? I don't know. Are my kids the way they are strictly because we decided to homeschool? I don't know. I can't go back and relive that. I just know that homeschooling is what we chose and we really liked it. And that's all that really matters. We liked doing it. So for our family, that's why we say homeschooling worked. Because we chose it and we liked it. That's all there is to it for us. So there you have it. If you've got more questions about homeschooling or parenting or family life, send them to Jack. Otherwise, you can also talk to me at amy at afarmishkindoflife.com. And if you're looking for some reading, you might want to check out my book about homeschooling, The Homeschool Highway, How to Navigate Your Way Without Getting Carsick. Thanks again, Jack, for letting me talk to your awesome folks. And I will talk to you again soon. I agree with everything Amy had to say there, and here's a few additional thoughts and ways to look at it. First, let's start off with you got to know what you want out of it to know if it worked for you. And a direct comparison to public school may not be warranted. I, I say this all the time, but you go pull 100 random people off the street, and 
uh, that are you know talk to us. Do you make at least let's say let's say we put it at seventy five thousand a year? Person making seventy five thousand a year or more, especially in a place like Dallas, not New York City, right? It, you could say that person is successful. They're paying their own bills. They're doing all right, you know. And you say, well, what do you do? And if they say, well, I'm an engineer for Alcatel or something, we don't give them their, their science final or their math final. We give them their history final. Or if they're a history teacher, we give them their science final, right? And we make sure that they're out of, they're, they're making at least 75 grand a year. And if they've been out of high school for at least 20 years. And we give them a final exam that they would have taken in 11th grade for a subject that's not their primary discipline that they're doing, they're going to fail it. Nine out of ten of them are going to fail. So so the metric of how you do on a test in general, I don't even know that it really applies to being successful. But even if we did that, I think what we have to understand is that if we had, like there's a test, I don't remember what it's called, but it's basically like a grade level performance test. It's a national thing, and you can have any teacher proctor your homeschooler to see how they're performing, and it may not be a terrible thing to do because it doesn't mean anything unless you do something with the results sent it somewhere. But let's say we did that, and let's say that your kid was really happy and doing really well, and they were doing well, and, and they did well with their test scores in science and history and writing, but they did poorly in math. And by poorly, I mean they came in about the 65th percentile, 65th percentile. Now, I don't mean they got a 65 like a score of an F, a grade of an F. I mean, when you take the percentile of where they fit, Nationwide, to every kid that took this test, they're in the 65th percentile. Maybe they're in the upper 80s, lower 90s of the other subjects. Well, you'd say, look, see, they're failing at math. Well, no, they're doing better than 64% of the people in public school. That's what that would mean. And, and so what happens is we have kids that go to that, that do homeschooling, and maybe they're not particularly strong in a subject, and we say, well, see that if they were in they were in real school, they would do. They have no 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 possibility of saying that they would do better. There's plenty of failure in school, and that's because not everybody's good at everything. So one of the strengths of homeschool is, unless we're really concerned with college, we can tailor it to the student's strength. So that we're training someone as they grow into an adult to be able to go and do professionally what they most want to do. I think that's way more important than some randomly assigned score for one metric on one thing. I don't give a shit about the advanced calculus I was taught in 12th grade because I've never used that shit again for the rest of my life. I use basic algebra when I play around with building an Excel spreadsheet. That's it. That's it. It's useless to me. So why did I work hard to pass the class? Because I thought it was important when I was a kid. That's why. That's, that's the only reason it's done nothing for me. So is it important that when your homeschooler graduates homeschool, they're good at calculus? Unless they're going to do something with calculus, the answer is no. So I think that that's a huge part of this is it working thing. All I want to know is my child or grandchild, in the case of us, learning what they need to learn to be able to function in society at a high enough level to accomplish their dreams. And I would like to make sure there's enough math and, and, and writing and, and things like that so that if they want college, they can, but they don't really need anything more unless they have a talent 
or or a passion for that thing. And if we spent time teaching children to chase their passions, we'd have a lot happier country with a lot happier adults in it in a single generation. And we might stop fighting with each other and playing with class warfare. Maybe that's why they don't do it, along with the fact that how can you, with a school with 3,000 kids in it, tailor education to the individual? Is homeschool working? I think it is, and I think you can judge a tree by its fruit. And the fruit that is the 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 uh, the adult who was homeschooled is a pretty damn good fruit overall. Now that said, it may not be for everybody. It may not be for. I have had friends who said we tried homeschooling, it didn't work. I've also had more than one friend tried homeschooling, didn't work. Shit came with COVID. Went back at it because of what I've talked about. Kid went to Excellus. Instead of whatever homeschool program, and they're like, this works. I'm not saying that'll work for everybody. You know, I'm just saying things work depending on how we mean the word work. And now time to hear from Doc Bones about bee stings and sensitivity increase across time. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the greatly expanded fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Tabitha, who writes, How can I minimize or regress an ever-increasing allergy to bee stings? I'm around 40 years old. My mom increasingly started to react to bee stings around my age from almost no reaction until she wound up in the ER and now has an EpiPen. Every time I have been stung over the past couple of years, it has been increasingly worse to now I live on Benadryl and have trouble breathing for a few days. But the doctors won't give me an EpiPen because, well, I'm still breathing. Is there any way to reverse or minimize this trend? Tabitha, bee stings are a common outdoor nuisance. In most cases, they're just annoying, and home treatment is all that's necessary to ease the pain. But if you're allergic to bee stings, or you get stung numerous times, you may have a more serious reaction that requires emergency treatment or therapy to desensitize you to the particular allergy-causing substance. You might consider allergies to be a thing that affects kids or young adults, but a lot of people around your age start manifesting significant allergies as well. I myself started experiencing various allergies in my 40s, which have continued to this day. And yes, they've gotten worse over time. Bee stings are in particular a major nuisance for those people who like gardening or the outdoors in general. Let's talk about them for a minute. To sting, a bee jabs a barbed stinger into the skin. The bee sting venom contains proteins that affect skin cells and the immune system, causing pain and swelling around the sting area. In people with a bee sting allergy, bee venom can trigger a more serious immune system reaction. You might be surprised to know that adults tend to have more severe reactions than children do and are more likely to die of shock than children. There are different levels of reactions from mild to severe. You're experiencing worsening symptoms and that indeed is not unusual. Some people have a mild effect one time and much worse another. Most of the time, bee sting symptoms are going to be minor. You'll feel a sudden, instant, sharp burning pain at the sting site, and a red welt with swelling will appear at the area of the injury. This is what happens when I get stung. Those with moderate reactions will notice more extreme redness and an enlarging swelling that may progress over a day or two, may not resolve for a week. A severe allergic reaction is called anaphylaxis, and it's potentially life-threatening. It requires emergency treatment for sure. Signs and symptoms include skin reactions, including hives and itching and flushed or pale skin, sometimes not close to where the site of the injury was, difficulty breathing, swelling of the throat and tongue, a weak, rapid pulse, nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea, dizziness or fainting, and even loss of consciousness. 
people who have a severe allergic reaction to a bee sting have a 25 to 65 percent chance of anaphylaxis the next time they're stung. What can be done in your case, Tabitha? The basics you know, and you've performed them a number of times. They include removing the stinger, if there is one, cleansing the area with soap and water, icing the area down to bring down swelling, taking an oral antihistamine, like Benadryl, like you've been taking, to reduce itching, and using a topical cream to lessen symptoms. An option in recurring bee stings includes something called immunotherapy, which has been clinically proven to lessen insect venom sensitivity and might be a reasonable option for you, Tabitha. It involves injecting the patient with the reaction-causing allergen in order to increase tolerance to it. This isn't a one-time thing, by the way. Injections are given on a regular schedule once or twice a week. It's a long-term therapy meant to bolster the immune system without triggering a severe allergic reaction. Oftentimes, it will give ongoing relief that continues well after the treatment finishes. Immunotherapy is typically performed in adults or children that are at least 5 years of age. Regular injections enable the body to develop a tolerance to the venom. This part of the treatment is known as a build-up phase, usually lasts between 3 and 6 months. After that, the maintenance phase of treatment begins, during which the quantity of each dose remains stable. There are longer intervals, generally between 2 and 4 weeks between each injection, as opposed to once or twice a week. Within a year of starting this immunotherapy, allergic symptoms should be greatly diminished. Treatment usually continues for 3 to 5 years, at which point symptoms should disappear altogether. Immunotherapy is very safe, but expect some warmth, redness, and swelling at the injection sites. You'll be asked to hang out at the doctor's office for a half hour or so to make sure the reaction isn't excessive. By the way, for the life of me, I can't imagine why a doctor would hesitate writing a prescription for an EpiPen in someone with your history. It's simple to use, safe, and other than your heart racing a little for a while, it's pretty well tolerated. You might consider getting a second opinion or maybe seeing an allergy specialist. Possibly the best way to prevent issues with bee stings is not to get stung. Consider these strategies. Avoiding wearing bright colors or floral prints, which can attract bees. Avoid drinking sweet beverages when outside, especially inspecting cans and straws before drinking from them. Tightly cover food containers and trash cans. Avoid fallen fruit. Wear closed-toed shoes when walking outside. Don't wear loose clothing, which can trap bees between the cloth and your skin. Be careful when mowing the lawn or trimming vegetation, activities which might arouse insects in a beehive. If you have hives near the house, consider having them removed by a professional. If you notice a few bees flying around you, stay calm and slowly walk away from the area. Swatting at an insect may cause it to sting. If a bee or wasp stings you or many insects start to fly around, cover your mouth and nose and quickly leave the area. When a bee stings, it releases a chemical that attracts other bees. If you can, get into a building or closed vehicle. Anyway, hope this helps. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, do an old country doctor and your family a favor by getting medically prepared with quality kits and individual supplies from our entire line at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. So, just a couple things to add to that. One, I've, I've checked in immunotherapy for bee venom, and they say it's up to 98% effective in preventing sy- systemic allergic reactions to stings. And it may be. I, I question whether a person who never had a reaction to bee stings, who developed one, if that would still be the case. And I'm not saying it isn't. I don't know here. What I know is this. Every person I know 
that's kept bees as a beekeeper because they you're going to get stung if you're a beekeeper across time it's going to happen no matter what you do because you get more and more comfortable use less and less protection you're always interacting with bees sooner or later you're going to get stung they either get to a point where a sting because they're basically doing their own immunotherapy they're getting stung and that's creating a reaction and the body's adapting to it the same way except it's a full on dose instead of a you know a, a micro dose i guess you'd call it and they either develop total resistance where like they get stung and it doesn't do other than the pain at the site initial but they don't even swell up anymore they don't even turn red or they develop the sensitivity so since the sensitivity seems to have a correlation to exposure i'm not sure it would work for that person in particular but it might i don't know So it's definitely worth checking into with someone that specializes in that. Now, the next thing I'm going to say is Bones is like, I don't know why any doctor wouldn't prescribe an EpiPen to somebody who's had these kind of reactions in case the next one's worse since the odds that it's going to be worse keep going up each time. Maybe his professional courtesy prevents him from saying, "Your doctor is an effing idiot and you need a new doctor." That's what I'm going to say there, okay? That's what I think is you need a new doctor. Your doctor's an effing moron and I wouldn't want that doctor anymore because the doctor is stupid. Stupid. One more time, your doctor is stupid and if you want to play this for your doctor so he knows or she knows that they are stupid, please do so when you tell them you found a new doctor because they're stupid. I actually would consider this if I was if I was a lawyer listening to this show I'd want to track you down and I'd want to find out who this doctor is and I'd want to find out if anybody ever had a severe reaction who had previously re- kept, re- requested an EpiPen who was told no I'd want to sue this idiot back into the stone age you complete moronic idiot you Just I know that's not very Christmassy sounding, but that's how stupid this doctor sounds to me. Now I'm just a redneck hippie dog farmer. I don't know. I could be wrong here. Maybe there's a good reason not to do this. If you're a doctor out there and you can give me a good reason and not because I say so because I'm a doctor, then then tell me and I'll retract what I had to say. Otherwise, if I'm a lawyer, I'm looking to sue some ass if I hear something like this. Next up, let's talk about something a little bit less blood pressure raising for Jack. Let's talk about work boots. Yeah, we're going to hear that from, from, about that from uh, Ben Falk. Hey, Jack and all Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design. Call about work boots. Um, I basically wear three things the whole year. Well, I go barefoot as much as I can. That's often not practical. Then I wear Birkenstock clogs, which are great for my super wide feet. They're shaped like human feet actually are, unless you have very narrow feet. And they are thorn-proof, so I can really... And they cover my toes, so they're great for a lot of work. I'm not going to go use a chainsaw with them, but they're beefy. I once wore Crocs for a few months, and it was not a good experience. Step right through a black locust thorn, or worse, a hawthorn thorn right into your foot. Um, Birkenstock, they're like... You see nurses wear them a lot. Like Hospital workers are great for me if you're on your feet. Um, you can replace the insoles, you know, the footbeds over and over and over again. They do hold snow, which kind of sucks. So when you, I'm, I'm in, in and out, you know, dozens of times a day. So the slip on is key. Then for, you know, real work, work, heavier work, I have Hakes, H-A-I-X, chainsaw boots, which are like mountain boots, but they're chainsaw protective. And those are hard to find in this country. They're not really made in this country. Those are German or something. H-A-I-X. Workboot.com, I want to say. 
where I got one. Then I wear Hoffman chainsaw boots, which have, you know, they're um, cocked. They have like spikes in them. And they're steel toe. That's if it's very deep and snowy and or slippery out, icy. And I have another pair of, of, of Hoffman work boots. Hoffman, I think it's with two Fs, made in Idaho in the U.S. They're great. Um, they do have like a duck boot, which I had, and it's very defective, and they wouldn't stand by it. So that's a bit of a bummer. Folks at Hoffman, if you're hearing this, I hope you do get customers from the uh, Survival Podcast, and it's great you're doing this in the United States, but those boots are really defective, and they're like, yeah, send them back, and you know, be like a hundred some odd dollars to fix them. And they lasted like barely two years before the rubber cracks up. So I wouldn't buy their duck boots. But otherwise, their other leather work boots have been great. Good luck. Like I said when I did the intro, uh, Ben and I live in very different climates with very different terrain and very different needs. So I sent this one to him, mainly because the person I asked about it lived in a climate more like Ben's than mine. But as I was listening, I thought it might be interesting for me to tell you all what I do for footwear here on the farm and for for hunting and things like that. Uh, I actually, I used to wear Crocs on occasion too because I became pretty enamored with the fact I just slip them on my feet and go outside. But Ben's right. Stuff will go right through the sole of them. And we have locust thorns and stuff like that. But we have live oak here that's not actually a thorned tree but the limbs that fall the small limbs the 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 the, the little sticks off of them they go through footwear like a thorn they're very hard and they're generally a little bit and they're pointed enough to go through a shoe and they will go through there a nail will go right through there but stuff gets inside them and fire ants get inside them too and so i wanted something that was waterproof slip on no problem. And what I ended up finally coming down with, I had a really great uh, waterproof, it was actually like a rubber outside uh, work, low-cut boot type muck boot thing that was made by Cabela's. And I loved it. And they were lifetime warranted. So when they leaked finally after like five years, I'm like, I'll just get another. But they stopped making them so they can't lifetime warranty since they don't make them no more. See how they ran that scam? And they didn't make anything like it anymore. And I ended up finding they're not rubber, they're leather. But if you if you treat them with like snow seal or whatever, they work really well. They're made by Timberland, and they're called Mount Madsen, M-A-D-D-S-E-N, slip-on uh, hiking shoes is what they market them as. And they have a Vibram sole, and they are waterproof right up to where the, the, the nylon piece that, that makes them slip on between the tongue and the body. If you get to there... Uh, you, you're gonna get wet inside, but that brings you up to about your mid uh, upper part of your foot, and and they're great. I'm on my second pair. My first pair I wore for three years, and I wear them almost every day, almost every day, and on and off all the time, just like Ben said with his Birkenstocks or whatever they are. Um, for work boots, I'm a big fan of of Justin work boots, and these look like cowboy boots, but they have a work sole. You can get them with a steel toe, etc. Some of them are made in the United States. Berkshire Hathaway, who who also now owns a company that makes Air Out, which I like as well, um, and I'm going to talk about them in a second. Uh, Tony Lama, a bunch of other Western-style boots are all owned by Berkshire Hathaway, even though it's it's like a subcorp of a subcorp type thing. Uh, and obviously they're going to outsource. So they make the, uh, Justin boots are now made in Texas. 
They're also made in Mexico. They're also made in China. And in, you have to individually know what what particular model, I guess you'd say, you're buying and know where they're made if that is important to you. Now, being right here in North Texas, I'm fortunate that not that far away from here, in a little town called Justin, there's a Justin Boots outlet where you can buy factory seconds, and you can go look in there and see where they're made if you want to know where they're made. And, and I find it to be a very well-made boot. boot. On that note, uh, there's another brand, and my wife loves these for just you know dress-up looking boots and stuff. But Ariat, uh, and that's A R I A T. Um, they're sold uh, all over, available on Amazon. I have links to all this stuff in the show notes for you today. Uh, but they're also sold regularly at kind of feed type department stores like Tractor Supply, like Atwoods. They tend to carry the these boots. And uh, same thing with Justin. About a quarter of them, they're different models and, and styles and are made in the United States still. And then some are made in Italy. And those are fantastic, by the way. The areas made in Italy are fantastically made. The ones made in Mexico are pretty good. And they also make them in China, which are probably the least desirable. So it may be something you want to more be able to shop for in, in person for. The reason I even said this is I recently also had an email from somebody said, what the point is of a cowboy boot, Jack? Uh, flat soles for two-stepping on your stupid country bars, and you can't possibly think that they're a good work boot. The cowboy-style, western-style boot with the right sole is a fantastic work boot, and they're available both with and without steel toes. And some of the things that Ben's, you know, Ben uses a chainsaw a lot, I'll just say that. That's part of why you heard him bring it up so many times. He's worried about protecting his feet, which I completely understand. Um, so you can get that, or just a, a standard work boot, and they still look good when you go out. So generally what I do is I have a pair that I'm wearing outside that I'm using as work boots. And I have a pair that I'm using when we go out to dinner or something. And about the time the ones that I'm using as work boots are really on their last legs, I take that pair that I've been using as a dress was really broken in and all, and I turn that into my work boots and I buy another pair. And that's every two and a half, three years. So these boots, you know, both brands, the Justins and the Ariat, they they last. Anyway, with that, I, I just want to do a quick one for you guys today since I did get to talk a lot. But I've been getting a lot of questions about Christmas coming up. I want to onboard my normie brother, my normie son, my normie dad to Bitcoin. What should I buy? How should I do it? Should I put it on a hardware wallet? Should I do No. All right? Figure out how much Bitcoin you want to give them. Let's say 50 bucks. Go buy 50 bucks worth of Bitcoin. And even though I'm always going, you know, don't hold on the exchange. If you want to, you can leave it on the exchange. That way, if they want to buy more, they can see how to do it when you do what I'm going to say next. And then, if you really want them to have something open, make them a certificate or something that says, you have been gifted from your friend, your brother, your cousin, your son, your loving daughter, whatever it is. 50 U.S. dollars worth of Bitcoin. And this certificate entitles you to a 15-minute session to show you exactly how to get it and how to use it and how to save it safely. And then when they're like, okay, well, how do I get my Bitcoins? You say, well, let's go. Let's get your phone out, look up, software wallet of your choice. Again, I like Exodus for this. I don't care what you use as long as it's a non-custodial wallet. And they're going to install that wallet. 
and you're going to walk them through installing the wallet, which they will be able to do alone until they get to the part that's really scary, the seed phrase. You're going to sit down with a piece of paper with them and help them write down their 12-word seed phrase, and you're going to explain how important that 12-word seed phrase is. Okay? And then, once they have the seed phrase and they have the wallet set up and you set them up and make them put a passcode on their phone and you should write that down. They can trust you with it. It's your Bitcoin you're giving them. Okay? So that way, because when people are new to Bitcoin, I can't tell you how many people have done what I've said. Okay? And their friend comes back to him five years later and goes, Holy shit, that Bitcoin's worth a lot of money now, but I lost blah, 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 blah. I don't know how to get to it now. So you should probably for safekeeping until they're ready to move to the next level because you're giving 50 a hundred bucks you're not giving them twenty thousand dollars and you're giving it to them so don't worry you should keep a copy of that information yourself as a backup form consider yourself a trusted third party in this relationship until they are ready to go on okay and then send them the bitcoin and then watch them when they see it come in and then say well Isn't that interesting, Dad? You didn't give them any phone numbers or any information like that, did you? Look, now you have that money, and those words those words are how you get that money back. So here's what I want to do. Do you have another device? If you're at their house, go to their computer. Install that software wall on their computer. Encrypt it so it needs a password to get into it so it's protected. Do not let them use the same password as the one on their computer. That way if somebody gets in the computer, they have to get to the second password. Make a copy of that just in case they forget. Walk them through doing a wallet restore. All of this is less than 20 minutes, by the way. If you've done it before, it's easy. And they're going to enter those words and boom! Oh, wait, and now it's here. How's it in both places? Dad, mom, brother, cousin, sister, it's not in either place. It's in the blockchain. You just have a claim on it. No one can take it away from you. You have the private and the public keys. This is just how you access it. I don't understand. Well, let's say we put a security camera on your front door. Yeah, okay. And let's say we got an app on your phone so you can see what's in that camera. What the camera's pointing at anytime you want to, yeah? And you went to work, Dad. Yeah, okay, yeah. And you opened up your phone and you looked and you saw there was a person standing there waving. It was me. I was coming to visit you. I didn't know you weren't there. And I'm waving to you in the camera. And you're like, dummy, I'm not home. Am I in your phone? Is the camera in your phone? No? See, the Bitcoin's not in your phone. It's just how you access it. Now, it makes sense. When you're ready to go to the next level, you let me know. I'll teach you how to buy it for yourself and secure it at a higher level. But right now, since all you have is $100, bucks, $150, bucks, $50, you're very secure in it, and this is how it works. And then tell them, just keep an eye on it. Just open it up every couple weeks and look at it. Especially now, since we're in the bottom of a, of a bear market. Because sooner or later, they're going to call you on the phone and go, Hey, that $50 worth of Bitcoin is worth $98. How do I get some more? They've given you permission to help them. If nothing else, you gave them 50 bucks. You gave them 50 bucks. Maybe someday they'll decide they want to spend it. They're not sure how. They'll ask you, and they, they walk away from it. It doesn't matter. You gave them 50 bucks. Don't look at it because you gave them Bitcoin. You gave them the opportunity to move into the world of Bitcoin, but what you really gave them was $50 in the form of Bitcoin, and what they do with it is their business. But I would back up the backups until they're ready to move to the next level. And as they start to move to the next level, look, Dad, look, Mom, look, Brother, look, Sister, look, Cousin, look, Friend. 
now that you're willing to do this, I don't want to be responsible for this information anymore. Okay? I really don't. Let's get you on a hardware wallet. Now you know what to do. You decide what you do with, as far as additional backups and things like that. That's what I would do. Because I'm going to tell you, there's tons of people I've talked to. They're like, man, you know what? Back in 2014, I gave every member of my family $50 worth of Bitcoin. It's worth thousands of dollars now. And none of them know how to get it back. If they end up telling you, I don't care about that. You should have never done that. Okay, can I have it back? Sure. And you can get it back. You know? I'm just saying. And then that way, they're protected. and Because there's a lot of people who have also said, and they won't do nothing with it. Guys sitting on, like, some of these people, I'm telling you, I talked to one guy. His 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 father has half a Bitcoin and refuses to do anything with it because he just won't. Half a bit now when the guy gave it to him, I think Bitcoin was like three hundred and fifty bucks. Something like that. You know, it was like said like a hundred and fifty dollars that he gave his dad this Bitcoin with, and he, he refuses to admit that he was wrong. He own it's sitting on his computer and he won't take it. And I'm like, take it back. And he goes, I don't want to tell him I'm going to do it, and I don't have any of the information. I'm like, oh, dude, I something's got to be done. Just prevent that eventuality, because it's happened to a bunch of people, I'm telling you. But what a great Christmas gift. Let me teach you how to be free from the banking system and the state monetary cartel we call the central bank. Yeah? All right. With that, hope you guys enjoyed today's show. If you did, remember you can always help me out by what doing your online shopping, beginning at tspaz.com. Today is, uh, or not today, uh, this week is just a couple weeks away from Christmas. Last minute Christmas shopping. You don't want to go to the store. You don't want to go to the store ever if you're like me, but you really don't want to go to the department stores and shit like that right now. So you know you're going to slide those last-minute purchases in by buying them online. If you're going to do that, you start at tspaz.com, and no matter what you buy, you help support the show and the work we do. But right now, I have out for you my list of the 14 items that I've reviewed over the years that make the best gifts based on the feedback to me and based on how many of them sold. You'll see Santa Val at the top of the post for that. And uh, you can check those out. Uh, T-Spaz Christmas Ideas for 2022. When I publish this episode, I'm going to bump it back up to the top of the, the stack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. So if you pull up today's episode and scroll one below it, you'll see all those recommendations. I got some good stuff for you. Stuff for coffee drinkers, music enthusiasts, outdoors enthusiasts, gardeners, you name it. Uh, people that like to cook. People that just need some tools and some stuff for preppers too. But most of the stuff I have, even if it would be happy for a prepper to have it, anybody would enjoy it. But you can always help support us again by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. If you're not a member of the MSB yet, consider becoming a member of the Member Support Brigade. It's a great program. You get your money back multiple times per year if you use the discounts. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more. And with that, I'm going to officially say goodbye to you for 2022. You will hear my voice again if you listen to the show every day. You will have rewinds, and they will probably have new intros where it is new content. But as far as an official new episode, this is it. I'm out. I'm shutting down for Christmas. I hope you get the opportunity to do so as well. With that's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. They keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out? 